It's election week. Some of us loathe this time of the year. Some of us, we live for this. This is our time. I don't know who you are. I don't know why that would ever be. But it, this is not one of those years where the election is national, at least as far as the presidential goes. And, and for some of us, we are, have already toned out all of the various bits and pieces. One of the things that I hate about this season is that you get a whole bunch of men and women who stand up and say, I, I, I. Me, me, me. I am, I am, I am. And the reality is that most of the time when they say that, we know that they don't actually mean it. Or maybe they mean it, but they're not actually capable of what they're saying. Today, though, we're going to be in a scripture where Jesus says a whole lot about himself, and what I want us to do is believe it. Jesus is not a politician who is idle in his words about who he is or what he wants to do and what he wants to accomplish. He is not idle at all. And so we're in the book of Mark, and, and we've been looking through chapter 1. We started chapter 2 last week, and Mark has been presenting to us who Jesus is. And like I said, today we, we get to see and hear Jesus say, this is who I am. And so we're in Mark chapter 2. We're starting in verse 13, and we're going through 17 today. So let us read this together. It says this, He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. Verse 15, as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician. But those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus says his own words at the end here, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. He compares himself just before that to a physician that would come for those sick. Church, we live in a culture for whom the greatest sin is saying something is sin. The greatest sinners are those who would use the word sin, and thus we live in a culture that has removed itself from the need for Jesus. Because Jesus himself says, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Church, my argument today, and I don't think this is an argument necessarily as much as it is my proposition to those who I pray would agree with me, is that we are all of us sinners, and we are all of us in need of Jesus. Amen? And so church, what we want to see today is what Jesus says, what he shows about himself as he interacts with sinners. And this is important for every one of us here, every one of us. We're going to come back to this in a few minutes. I'll show you in Scripture in a few minutes where this is. But all of us are sinners. 
There are those, I think they, they would look at us and they would say, well, you talk about sin and that excludes people. No, calling people sinners includes everybody. I cannot stand up here in front of you and in any way proclaim to be not a sinner. And you can't in your pew sit there and claim to be not a sinner. We, we are all of us sinners. And so, church, just hear this. We are all in need of what Jesus has to offer. The three things today. The first is how Jesus called sinners. The second is his love for sinners. And third is how he heals sinners. And so we're going to begin with Jesus calling sinners to himself in verse 13 and 14. This is what it says. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. Now we're going to come back to verse 13 in a couple minutes, but I want to be in 14. It says, and he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. Levi, otherwise known as Matthew, was sitting in the tax booth. Why? Because he is a tax collector. Many of us already know this, but many of us maybe don't know this. But to be a tax collector in Jesus' day was not a good thing. But not just because the way we would think of an IRS agent and be annoyed that they're the ones that collect a portion of our income. For them, at that time, to be a tax collector was to be the absolute worst thing you could be in all of society, period. There was nobody worse than a tax collector. See, they didn't just collect collect taxes, they worked for the Roman government, and the Roman government was the invading army. And so to be a tax collector was to be a colluder. It was to be a traitor. A traitor to your own nation, to your own people, and because they were a nation that was so spiritually committed, a traitor to God himself. See, we think tax collector and we think IRS agent. You get on a plane and you sit next to a tax collector or to an IRS agent, they will never tell you they are an IRS agent. They will say they're an accountant. They will say they work for the government and end it there. They will not tell you they are an agent for the IRS. To be a tax collector, to be Matthew, to be Levi in our story here is to be the worst thing you could be, period. Think about that time when Moses, in friendship with Pharaoh, caught an Egyptian beating a Jew and killed him. The very next day, Moses sees two Israelites arguing, arguing when he confronts them, what do they do? They make a big stink about how he is a colluder and a traitor. And this is built into the, the foundation of what it meant to be Jewish and to have a really strong nationalistic identity. To be anything but a traitor would have been fine. To be anything but a tax collector colluding with those. And so church, what we need to know is that as we read about Matthew, he is the worst of the worst. 
And what does Jesus do? Jesus sees him in his tax booth and he says, follow me. Because I don't know who you are today. I don't know what's going on in your life. I don't know what secret things are in the darkness. And I don't know if you are someone who has publicly sinned over and over again. But what I do know is that if that is you, and maybe you consider yourself to be the worst of the worst, or maybe you look back on a time in your life when you were the worst of the worst, what we know is this, is that Jesus Christ calls the worst of the worst to follow him. And that's the first thing we need to see here. How can he possibly do that? How can Jesus call the worst of the worst to follow him, to come after him? Well, it's because of this, because Jesus cares far more about who you will be with him than you were without him. And so the fact that Matthew is the worst of the worst, that Levi is the worst of the worst, doesn't bother him because Jesus has an eye for the future, for who Levi, who Matthew will be as his friend. One of the writers of a New Testament book, the Gospel of Matthew, as a disciple, one of Jesus' closest 12, as a church planter and missionary who would eventually give up and die for the sake of Jesus. A few weeks ago, I was at the Colorado Baptist Annual Meeting in Broomfield, and one of the sessions there was on the persecuted church. A good friend of mine named Frank interviewed three church planters. All three are from Ethiopia. All three moved here out of uh, drastic and terrible persecution there. One of them lost his mother and his sister to persecution. They were killed for their faith. Here in Denver, and, and you may or may not know this, but the Southern Baptist churches um, are not all or not largely or even at that point majority white. We have over 80 different nationalities represented in Colorado alone for Southern Baptist churches. 80. It's a lot. These three men, these three pastors are church planting amongst Ethiopian refugees and immigrants who now live in Denver. In the course of their ministry in Denver, they met a man. And they knew immediately who he was because he had come from Ethiopia as well. And he was the man who was responsible for the death of that other pastor's mother and his sister. In sharing Christ with him, he became a Christian, a disciple. And now those three pastors are sending that new Christian out as a church planter. Church, hear this. Christ cares far more about who we will be in him than who we were in the past. So much so that he can take somebody like this man who was responsible for the persecution of these three pastors and their entire families and cause them to flee from where they were to here and use that man to plant churches and reach people for the with the gospel. The worst of the worst. Jesus doesn't care. He doesn't care about who we've been because he's calling us to be something new. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 tells us, therefore, there is, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. How can Christ look past our worst of the worst history? It's because he sees that in him we are a new creation. We are made 
new in Christ. And I know this is one of the hardest things for believers to understand and to really grasp. We struggle with it when it comes to other people, family members who have hurt us, friends who have hurt us, even other church people who have hurt us. But we're told that they have become, if they're in Christ now, new creations, new creatures. We see it in ourselves, and I think it's harder for ourselves because we know ourselves too well know who we were. You say, well, pastor, it's, it's one thing to say that Jesus loves the sinner, but you don't know me, and you don't know my past, and you don't know what I've done, and you don't know what I've been through. I don't know, but Jesus does. And he says to you as you come to him, I don't care about that. I mean, he cares about it, but it doesn't bother him. He says, you in me will be new. And that's what Jesus looks at. And that's what Jesus looks at at Levi as he passes the tax booth and invites Levi to follow him. Amen? Church, Jesus is looking to your future, not your past, for who you are. And he can see that. Second thing Jesus does in our passage here is sit with sinners. He shows his love for sinners by sitting with them. Verse 15, there's what it says. And he reclined at table in his house. Many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. Now, full pause. We need to picture this. We need to picture what's happening in this space. And if you've ever been to church before and you've ever been part of the Lord's Supper, if you've ever seen even uh, pictures or paintings of the Lord, the Last Supper, then this is actually what you should be picturing. They are likely in Matthew's largest room. They're at Matthew's house. Matthew was a rich guy. He didn't get there honestly, but he's a rich guy with a big house and lots of room and lots of food. Jesus just invited him to come, and then he goes to Matthew's house for dinner. And what we should picture is a table, not a tall table, but a low table where Jesus and his disciples and Matthew and tax collectors and sinners are all sitting around it, sort of laying down. They're leaning on pillows. They're resting on pillows. And here's what it tells us. It tells us that they were reclining at the table. Now, I just want to make us really uncomfortable here for a minute. When I hear the word recliner, I think of the Green Street's house, and they've got this giant couch with, that's all made up of different recliners. And if you sit in one, you're sitting next to another person, there's like six, eight inches before you get to the next person. This is not what we should picture. What we should picture is a group of really mostly, if not all men, who are sort of laying down alongside of a table. It's not that their legs are underneath the table, they're alongside the table, which means if I'm laying here and somebody else is laying here, my legs are probably touching theirs and them. And where do they put their hands? Well, they might put them right here. I don't know. It's awkward. We actually get a really clear picture of this in the, in the story of the Last Supper. Here's what it says, and I, I'm going to quote the King James Version on purpose here because it's just that much more awkward for us. It says, Now there was leaning on Jesus' bosom one of the disciples whom Jesus loved. What that tells us is that at the Last Supper, when Jesus is doing all of the various lifting of the bread and the wine and juice, and he's going through all of that, John, who's the disciple that Jesus loved, 
is literally laying on Jesus' chest. If I can just be a little bit flippant on this, they're cuddling. And that's awkward. Now, it's a different culture. We would not do that, right? A grown man laying on another man's chest, that's weird. But that is to say that they were really comfortable with each other and really accepting of one another. And in fact, you would not recline with anybody you didn't consider to be a friend or family. And then we go back to our passage here. And it says, and he, this is Jesus, reclined at the table in his house. That's Matthew's house. Many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. Church, make no mistake, this is a scandalous picture of Jesus. This is a scandalous picture of Jesus. This is a familiar scene. This is community. This is considered friendship. And what we see here is that Jesus is at, as at home with sinners and tax collectors as he is with his disciples and closest friends. He is as at home in this house of sinners as he would be in his own family and with his own friends. Church, this is really good news for you. Really good news for me because we are all sinners. And what this tells us is that Jesus is at home with you as he is with his best friends. It does not matter that every one of them in this room is the worst of the worst. So there's a category distinction that's being made here by Mark as he writes this. Tax collectors and sinners was a category of people for the worst of the worst. It was all those who were publicly known to be sinners. And Jesus is at home with them as he is at home with us. Wow. Not only is Jesus reclining with them, the text also tells us that they are reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And honestly, Jesus being at home and in comfort reclining with sinners, I don't think is as big of a deal as the fact that they are as at home with him. These are people who know they're sinners. They don't need to be convinced of it. They know they don't deserve the love of someone like Jesus. They know that everyone around them is judging them. And everyone around them knows exactly what they do, what they've done. And what are they doing? They are reclining with Jesus. The Jesus that we read about in Scripture is a friend of sinners. He does not create an anxious, a hard, an uncomfortable, or a difficult mood around sinners. He accepts them as they are in such a way that they are comfortable enough, as it says in our passage, to recline with him. And church, I want to be really careful here. I want to be really careful here because what he is not doing is condoning who they have been or what they have done or even who they still are. And we're going to see that in just a minute. But before we get there, I want us to really see the weight of what it means for a group of sinners to be at home with Jesus. To be comfortable. To feel like they're in friendship with 
Jesus. And church, I got to tell you, this makes me wonder if whether or not the Jesus that I share with people and that I and we preach puts sinners in a place of comfort where they know they are loved, where they know they can turn to him and trust rather than just because they are afraid. They're reclining with him. Jesus is reclining with them, but they're not the only ones reclining. It's also amazing to read this, and it tells us that, that they're reclining with Jesus and his disciples. Now, quick note, just as a, as a reminder, and if you haven't been here, the disciples here is four people. It is Peter, Andrew, James, and John. The rest haven't been called yet. Peter, Andrew, James, and John are the fishermen that Jesus called just a few, a few paragraphs ago to follow him. It's at this point that I want us to bring us back to verse 13 to see the significance that they are reclining as well. It says this in verse 13. He, Jesus, went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. Verse 14, and as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. Church, what I want us to see, what I want you to notice, is that Matthew is not just a tax collector. He's Peter's tax collector, and Andrew's tax collector, and John's tax collector, and James's tax collector. He is the tax collector that is sitting by the shore, by the dock, by where the fishermen come in, and when they make their money, he's the first thing they see. And he spent however many years making their lives difficult while he made his own comfortable. These four disciples have been called to follow Jesus maybe weeks before this. And on this day, what do we find? We find that Jesus, his disciples, and these tax collectors, including Matthew, are reclining together. Wow. But what happens? What happens? Here's a bit of vision casting for us. Here's a bit of, of hope. I want us to have hope as a church. In our passage, here's what it tells us. Twice in verse 15, it tells us that there were many uh, tax collectors and sinners. Here's what it says. As he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many who followed him. Now, church, what I want us to know is that many are following Jesus and many are sinners and tax collectors. And then I want to ask you a question. What would happen in the San Luis Valley if many of those who are the worst of the worst public sinners that we all know or you all know because you've lived here longer than I have, the worst of the worst were to suddenly come to Jesus? What would happen if those people that you know in this community who have betrayed this community, who have hurt this community, who have cheated this community, who have abused this community, what would happen if many of them suddenly came to Jesus? Beyond that, what would happen if the many teachers or nurses or farmers or ranchers or bankers, hospitality workers, the many of the neighbors who don't yet know Jesus, what would happen if many of them suddenly came to Christ? What would this community look like if the many were comfortable 
with Jesus, enough to sit at his feet, to sit alongside of him, to be comfortable with who Jesus is, enough, enough that he gets the opportunity to heal them. And that's where we move to our last part of this passage, that Jesus does not leave sinners where he found them. Jesus doesn't leave sinners where he found them. Verse 16. The scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Now, real quick, let's enter back into that picture we saw. You've got Jesus and his disciples, uh, all these sinners and tax collectors reclining around the table. We get this picture of comfort. We get this picture of health, right? There's just, this is a great community that's happening right here. And then we read that there are the scribes of the Pharisees, and I don't know why they're even in this room. I mean, if I throw a party for me and my friends, I'm not inviting the the guys who are going to scowl in the corner. But here they are, and that's exactly what I picture, scowling in the corner. They don't even want to be there. But they're there because they're testing things out and they're challenging Jesus. got to tell you, almost every church I've ever served in or attended regularly has had a group or a few of these sorts of folks around. While everyone else is delighting in Jesus and enjoying one another, they are simply worried about what the community is going to think when people are smoking outside the front doors. While the youth are growing in Jesus, they are just wondering what the youth are going to break that week. Never mind the fact that youth breaking something means that youth were there, right? Let me tell you this, and I'm just going to cast vision for all of us here. I will be honest. I don't know that any of you are this person right now. Let's, Let's not become it. Let me say this. Let me tell you, in a room full of people enjoying each other and loving Jesus, you don't want to be the one scowling in the corner, okay? Don't be these people. What they're doing is they are making an assumption that someone like Jesus Jesus should not be so comfortable with someone like these sinners and these tax collectors. They're working on an assumption that to associate with sinners will make one more sinful. That being with those who are polluted by the stain and the stench of sin will cause that stain and that stench to spread. In short, they have no idea that the power of God is stronger than the power of sin and the devil. Now, just a couple weeks ago, we saw Jesus with the leper. He's already openly shown that touching the leper would not make him more like the leper, but what? Make the leper more like him. Now he's doing the same exact thing with the worst of the worst sinners. He's saying, I'm not going to become more like them, but they're going to become more like me. As they make this assumption, they are playing what I call the comparison game. And church, this is a really dangerous game to play. It's dangerous because what we do when we play the comparison game is we look at everybody else and we easily find somebody else who's a bigger, greater, worse sinner than I am. And then we assume that because of that, I'm okay. 
And I got to tell you, it's not hard to find a bigger, worse, crazier, more damaging sinner than I am. Look down the street. Look across the pew. There's someone. The comparison game pits us against them. And when we see someone worse than us, we assume we're good. But church, the only comparison that we should ever make is between us and Jesus. And I got to tell you, when I compare myself to Jesus, I instantly become the worst of the worst. It doesn't even matter what you've done. I know what I've done. And so they're playing this game, and it's dangerous because they assume that they're fine because there are people in the room that are worse off. But we never want to play that game. Our standards should be Jesus. So as a result, they ask this question. They ask why it is that Jesus is eating with tax collectors and sinners. And as always, when Jesus hears a question, or even when he doesn't, as we saw last week, he uses that question to teach what he wants to teach. And in that case, he is teaching exactly who he is. His answer is really this. As they ask how it is he could do that, he says, that his staying away from sinners like these would make as much sense as a doctor who only sees healthy people. At that time, there was no such thing as preventative health care. I don't know about you, but I've never woken up on any given day and thought, well, I feel really good. I'm going to go to the doctor today. See, Jesus doesn't deny that he's spending time with sinners. He doesn't make light of their sin. He doesn't eliminate their sin. He doesn't negate their sin. He's fully open that these, in fact, are sinners that are in need. He doesn't soften that at all. His acceptance of them is not an invitation for them to continue in the sin that has come to be their very identity. Tax collectors and sinners. Can you imagine walking around with that label? It's who they were. It's who they thought they were. It's who everybody else thought they were. And Jesus spending time with them didn't validate that. He didn't affirm that in them. On the contrary, Jesus did not call Levi so that he would remain the same. He did not sit, recline with sinners and tax tax collectors so that they would remain unchanged. Because nobody goes to a doctor hoping nothing will be different when they leave. Just as Jesus came for sinners, doctors come for the sick. The sick come to the doctor for healing. Sinners come to Jesus for forgiveness. Friends, no sick person goes to the doctor hoping to just be heard and accepted and not helped and healed. One of my big fears is that modern Christianity has become more like treating Jesus like a therapist who validates our brokenness and who helps us come to terms with it and to kind of work through it rather than a physician with a scalpel who is cutting free with cancer that would kill us. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12 says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, 
pierce things to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. I love this passage. In Scripture, the Word of God is often described as a sword, and that is a reference we see here. But church, I would ask you this. What instrument is sharper than a two-edged sword and is capable of splitting, severing between joints and marrow? It's a scalpel. It is a scalpel. And in the hands of a skilled physician, a scalpel is a tool of healing. Jesus is saying, yes, I'm sitting, I'm reclining with sinners. Yes, I have created a, a group here that is comfortable in everything about what's going on. But he also says, I am the doctor that will not leave them sick. I have a cure. And so church, I beg us, I beg that we would be a people that would look to Jesus as the physician, as the surgeon, ready to cut away the sin and the darkness, the evil of our lives. In verse 17, Jesus says this, very end, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Now he's speaking to the scribes of the Pharisees at this point. These are a group of men who have everything together. They're well-educated, they've got money, they've got good clothes, right? They've got good families, everything is put together. They've played the comparison game. They believe they're better than those in the room. And so when Jesus answers this, it almost looks like he's not talking about them. But that's the thing he is. He's still talking about them. They're still the worst of the worst. They're still those exactly sinners who need him. We're told in Romans chapter 3, verse 324, that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 3, 9 through 12 asks this, What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we've already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin, as it is written, None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they've become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Jesus says, I've come for the sinners, not the righteous. Church, there are no righteous. There are no righteous. All are sinners in need of Jesus. And that's really good news for us today. It's really good news. Because it means Jesus came for you. And he came for me. He doesn't exclude that. In the book of Luke, when Luke shares this story, he actually adds another word on the end. He says this, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Luke is really concerned about the end game for those sinners, that they would come to repentance. But Mark, Mark is far more interested in the who, and so he leaves that word out at the end. Because Mark's emphasis is that the who of this passage that Jesus came for is you and me. So, friends, we look at Jesus and we see what he does for sinners. And, and church, let us openly admit that we are sinners in need of Jesus. We see the gospel all over this passage. Maybe you're sitting here and you are just simply a sinner. You've never come to Jesus. And you look at your life and you know you're a mess. 
and you compare it to Jesus and not the people around you and you know that, that you don't measure up and, and you're sitting there going, what hope do I have? Church, here's your hope, that you are welcome. Christ invites you. He calls you. And not only that, but he will sit with you and he will make you comfortable. He will make you like family. Some of us in this room are sinners turned saint. And this is the good news, that even if we have been sinners, we are now saints because we've been made new. And so even though the sin still rears its ugly head and even though we struggle constantly, we know that he has made us into new creatures. And the question I have for you is, how are you, how are we welcoming and reaching out to the sinners of our community? Do the lives that we live outside of this church welcome people who don't know Jesus to be comfortable with who we are and what we are so that we might get the opportunity to share the gospel? For all of us, whether you are a sinner who needs to come to Jesus and you're sitting at his feet, or maybe you are a sinner who's been turned into a saint, or maybe you're that person who's still sort of sitting there, you're reclining with Jesus, but as you look at your life, you just say, you know what, I've never been healed. I've never had him work in me. I've never grown. I've, I've, never, been, um, I've never been helped. I've never been made new then church, let me just offer to you right now, today is the day. Stop sitting and reclining with Jesus and invite him. Invite him to save you. Invite him to take that scalpel to your life and begin to cut away the, 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 the ugly and the dead, the flesh, the sin that, that's there. Invite him to be the physician and not just the therapist. Invite him to come in. And church, I would invite you to that moment today. It's worth it. It is worth it. Jesus is a friend of sinners, and he's the savior of sinners. Christians, we need to be ready to say, yes, I'm a sinner. But that's not all I am. Because Christ has made me more. He's looked to my future. He's looked to who I will be in him. And let me just tell you this one more time. If you're sitting there in your seat and you think I'm the worst of the worst, I've been the worst of the worst, and even if I'm not in comparison to him, I know I am in my heart, there is forgiveness for you today in Jesus Christ. He's already paid the penalty. He's already done what needs to be done so that you can be forgiven. And if that's you today, come find me. Find somebody else here in this room that loves Jesus, and let's talk about what it means to follow him.